Hello, everyone. Welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury. Uh, today's a solo episode. I found uh, some articles about housing, and I uh, haven't really, I don't think I've really talked about housing at all on here, and I'm honestly not that familiar with it. So some of this stuff will be sort of new to me. Uh, I've read the basic differences between like NIMBYs and YIMBYs and all those stupid acronyms. Uh, so I have some articles that are basically like uh, the arguments between the two. And I thought I would read some passages from those and we can figure out what all this stuff's about, you know? All right. So the first one that I want to cover is actually by Nathan J. Robinson. It came to my attention because someone who is high up in the California Yimby nonprofit organization, whatever it's called, was basically making fun of the way that he dresses, which is the low-hanging fruit that everyone reaches for, uh, for Nathan J. Robinson. Which, I, I think he looks fine. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, but anyway... So this article is called The Only Thing Worse Than a NIMBY is a YIMBY. And that California YIMBY guy and some other people in the replies to the thread kept saying that it was like um, basically just the same arguments that rich people make. So I checked out the article and uh, I don't know what they're talking about, really. Uh, So... Let me just start going over this. So he's talking about NIMBYs, which is not in my backyard. Uh, I think most people know that. It's people who object to building homeless shelters uh, or methadone clinics, according to uh, Nathan. They basically are against projects that would improve things. He gives the example of uh, Bill Koch who waged a 12-year campaign to stop a wind farm from ruining his view in Nantucket. And then there's Yimbies, which are the mirror image of them. Uh, They define themselves as taking the opposite approach. Instead of saying, not in my backyard, they say, yes, in my backyard. The Yimbies' number one demand is to build more housing. So he cites the Yimby Action, the organization Yimby Action, And they describe themselves as a network of pro-housing activists fighting for more inclusive housing policies and a future of abundant housing. We drive policy change to increase the supply of housing at all levels and bring down the cost of living in opportunity-rich cities and towns. Uh, California Yimby, which is the organization that guy was from, has a similarly innocuous pitch. We work with housing policy experts, elected officials, and grassroots organizations across California to craft and pass legislation at the state and local level that will help accelerate home building, solve the affordable housing crisis, and reduce climate pollution. Further on, he says, The MB pitch is generally quite simple. Everyone knows there is a housing crisis in many of America's cities and that the rent is too damn high. King, by the way. Jimmy McMillan is is a king. Back to the article. This is from The Guardian. A quote. 
Members of Yimby groups consider themselves progressives and environmentalists, but they're not afraid to grow the occasional to throw the occasional firebomb into the usual liberal alliances. They frequently take aim at space hogging single-family homeowners and confound anti-capitalist groups by daring to take the side of developers, even luxury condo developers. Their willingness to lobby for market-rate housing in traditionally minority neighborhoods has seen them called techie gentrifiers and developer stooges. Their penchant for free market, for market-based solutions has seen them called libertarians with trickle-down economics. I mean, so far, it seems like a pretty clear, <laughs> correct argument. <laughs> but let's continue. Nathan cites some FAQ sections for Open New York, which is another Yimby group. And he says... You can see that they are, one, very cagey on the question of how committed they are to making new development affordable, and two, very defensive about definitely not just being real estate industry shills. So the first question is, by build more housing, do you mean affordable housing? Answer, we want more construction of both affordable and market rate housing. Both sides are right, really. Both are good and both are urgently needed. Urgently. Urgently needed. The city should focus on providing affordable housing for those who need it most. If we allow more construction, fewer people will need help finding housing, and the city's resources for affordable housing would go further. We can't subsidize our way out of a shortage. Not correct. In- incorrect. You. We can't subsidize our way out of a shortage. What are you talking about? <laughs> There's like so many vacant homes in the U.S. <laughs> okay. Question two. New housing tends to be expensive in New York. Won't new housing make New York City more expensive? This is a common fallacy, but we believe it is mistaken. If you're concerned about housing affordability, look at the effect of new market rate housing on the housing market as a whole. New market rate housing takes pressure off existing housing. If you're interested in diving deeper, diving in deeper as to why, this article, a link uh, blog post here, which I'm going to get to in a second, this article does a good job explaining this fallacy. If this sounds like supply side, aka trickle down economics, something you should justifiably be wary of, here's why it is not. Supply side urbanism is a misnomer. Oh, sorry, I. I'm going to look at the other article. Maybe I'll look at both. Uh, but let me just get through the other questions first. Uh, question. But new housing is built as a luxury with expensive construction methods and finishes. Can it really be affordable? Answer. Developers market all new housing as luxury. A restaurant can call itself gourmet, but that doesn't make it high-end. And even if it is high-end... That means fewer lower-end units being renovated for occupancy by richer people than the current occupants. Question. Are you secret shills for the real estate industry? Answer. Nope. We are New Yorkers who spend our spare time trying to address a problem that we care deeply about. None of us make any money from our activities with Open New York. Okay. So let's go to these other articles that are linked here. Okay, so the first link in the FAQ is from City Commentary, City Observatory. 
I don't I don't really know what this is. Let, let's check what it is real quick, actually. <laughs> okay. So this is a website and think tank devoted to data-driven analysis of cities and the policies that shape them. It is supported in part by the Quicken Loans Community Investment Fund and was founded by support from the from Knight Foundation. What is that? The Knight Brothers. Fuck are those? It sounds like bargain bin Coke Brothers or something. All right, so this is like a think tank funded by Quicken Loans and run by this growthist economist from Portland. Um, and so they have this article called Urban Myth Busting, Why Building More High-Income Housing Helps Affordability. Um, and I mean, the... First of all, they cite Noah Smith, who I've mentioned on the show numerous times. Um, that's how you know <laughs> you're going down the wrong direction if you hear from Noah Smith. Um, but the funniest thing is the first statistic they cite in this article like deflates their entire argument. So they say, Harvard University's Joint Center on Housing Studies reprised this line in one of their recent reports. 50% of rental households make less than $34,000 per year, but only 10% of new multifamily units are affordable at this income. Um, and then they say, from this statistical observation, it's a short leap to the conclusion that building new housing is part of the affordability problem. Um, <laughs> but they say, like, the key context missing here is that in the United States, we have almost never built new market rate housing for low income households, which just inherently makes no sense. If it's market rate, then it's what the median person can afford and not what the below median person can afford. Um, but so again, this is, um, this is right before they say, if this sounds like supply-side economics, something you should justifiably be wary of. Here's why it's not. But then in this article they're citing, right before that, uh, they say, what really matters is not whether new housing is created at a price point that low- and moderate-income households can afford, but rather whether the overall housing supply increases enough that the existing housing stock can, quote, filter down to low and moderate income households. So it's not trickle down, it's filter down. Um, so I think that clears that up. I mean, that's, I think most of their argument, <laughs> they're just going into some slight detail on that. They make an analogy to cars, which are totally the same thing. Um, because, you know, you can just go to 
a housing lot and buy a house there and, uh, you know, drive it off and, uh, you know, just live wherever you want. And uh, the, the price of a house is just exclusively all about how, how old it is. And, you know, the reason that, uh, as, as they point out, that uh, low-income people tend to live in older houses, that's because older houses are cheaper and it has nothing to do with uh, their neighborhoods being like low-income areas where all the housing is cheap. And so all the houses get abandoned um, and like the residents can't afford to renovate them. Nothing to do with that. It's because the house is old, so it's cheaper. That's what their argument is. And then so this other uh, article that the FAQ cites is actually a WordPress blog, blog post. They didn't even get a, like a full domain name. It's zero mean error, broken header image. Let's see who this is. We're Andrew and John. Okay. They link to a non-existent Twitter account called Zero Mean Error and another non-existent Twitter account called A Brick Wall with a Y. Um, okay. So this is a mystery blog from no one, basically. And uh, it's from March 2015. They're arguing that supply side urbanism is a misnomer. It's not. It's not trickle down. It's nothing like that. It's filter down. First of all, so it's nothing like trickle down. It doesn't trickle. It filters. Okay. But also, you shouldn't rope us in with uh, Art Laffer. That's unfair, uh, because actually, the difference is, um, you know, uh, well, see. What the thing is, is, um, so trickle down is actually a macroeconomic thing, right? And that's why it's wrong. But, um, you know, filter down, that's, that's microeconomics. And so it's totally different, totally different things. Micro and macro, very real distinction. Um, as I have said on the podcast many times, you know, there's a, there's an actual difference between, micro and macro just like you know with evolution there's micro evolution that's real and there's macro evolution that's not real so uh, I think that basically covers it so their next argument here is supply side economics is chiefly about cutting taxes on top earners it works by changing the rules of the game so that rich people get more money at time t, rich people get x dollars in net income. At time t plus one, they get y dollars of net income, where y is greater than x. Whether this creates secondary effects that benefit everyone else, indeed, this is the selling point, doesn't matter. The mechanism is to give to the rich and work out that it pray and pray that it works out okay. This is not the case with supply side urbanism. Its mechanism of action is liberalizing land use restrictions. Yes, deregulation was part of Reaganomics, but most people don't think about telecom market structure as a core tenant. Another, like, lampshading the obvious argument against them and, you know, portraying it as ridiculous by making it, like, over, over-specifying it. Like, I think everyone 
understands that part of trickle down is deregulation. That's that's what everyone thinks. <laughs> it's cutting taxes and deregulating. It's making rich people richer by doing those two things. Um, and so that's I mean, what what's the difference here? Let's see if they let's see if they make an even uh, an argument that even approaches something convincing. Now, critics point to deregulation as being essentially pro-rich. It's easy to see why people think this. We look around and see that private developers are only building fancy condos. If we were to upzone a block in Columbia Heights, the ubiquitously boxy units of DC luxury vernacular would no doubt eat it alive. But this is a problem at the margin, rather than an inherent feature in the way that supply-side economics is unambiguously pro-rich. It's a subtle difference. Whether private construction will cater to the non-rich is a function of how much housing we allow. As Let's Go LA explains so well. So again, they're making a car analogy here. As an analogy, if we only allowed 7,500 cars to be built every year, auto manufacturers would only be making Maybox and Maseratis, and they'd, they'd all be getting bought by the likes of people who own Mittal Steel and the Burj Khalifa. Now imagine if we built 750,000 cars a year. They'd still be unaffordable to most people, but your tech bros and finance quants would be able to buy them. Now imagine if we built 75 million cars a year. So they want to build 75 million houses a year. Is that, is that what your argument is? You want to build 75 million houses a year? One thing they're leaving out of this is houses are mostly expensive because, not because of like the building, but because of the land they're on. And like all land is already owned. And so in order to like somehow reduce the price of housing without somehow like lowering the expected value of the land, you would have to have like huge density on that piece of land uh, to get the rents that the landlords are looking for. Like you can't just let the market take care of things. You actually have to say fuck you to rich people and take their shit away. Or at the very least, increase everyone's income substantially and prevent landlords from raising rent in response to it. The, the market isn't like a magic resource allocating machine. It's a like a ritual arena that rationalizes taking shit away from poor people. There's no solution to this where everyone wins. Someone has to lose, and it should be the people that already have like billions of dollars. Pretty Pretty simple. All right, let's get back to the Robinson article. So he links another... Oh, he actually talks about those articles that are linked in the FAQ there. Yeah, and he makes the same point. They replace the word filter, trickle with filter, so... And uh, economist Noah Smith, he says, uh, supporter of the EMB framework, says that progressives simply do not understand economics. It has become an article of faith that building market rate housing raises rents rather than lowers them. The logic of Econ 101, that an increase in supply lowers price, is alien to most progressives. So I still haven't gotten to the arguments that rich people supposedly make, like the... California EMB guy said 
I don't see that part. Where is that? And this, this is funny. Uh, Robinson actually makes a supply and demand based argument against this person. So even in terms of supply and demand, they're still wrong. <laughs> He's talking about uh, 432 Park Avenue. Yeah. Um, so uh, like affordable housing building was demolished for that. Uh, a stupid tower that's full of empty apartments which again uh disproves <laughs> the um the yimby argument because they can just buy all the fancy apartments and like not live there use it for money laundering um so he says, uh, we've increased the supply of high-end housing, but we've actually decreased the amount of housing in the city available to working-class people. So supply and demand isn't just like... It, it applies on multiple levels. If you were even to attempt to bring it into reality, which, again, is not, not real. Um, even if we assume that the local rich who move into the pencil tower will make their previous dwellings vacant, which will then be occupied by the slightly less rich... Who will in turn vacate their own previous homes? This is exactly the argument they make. I've I've read a couple of the studies that these EMB people cite, and it's exactly this argument. Uh, if we build market rate housing, then rich people will move into that, and then they'll leave their old house, and then slightly less rich people will move into that, and then they'll leave their old house, and then slightly less rich people will move into that, and then they'll leave their old house, and then eventually it filters down to the poor. Um, and uh, I don't remember if I <laughs> uh, called this out in one of those articles but um, I might have dumped the audio but at one point they said it only takes 25 years for the prices to get to an affordable level and it might have even been like a middle class level not even uh, like low income level which completely insane so We'll build uh, uh, luxury housing, and then in 25 years, uh, the middle class will be able to afford uh, housing. Or we can build 75 million houses a year. Um, so Robinson says the fact that there may be multiple different housing markets within a single city also means that something that helps the consumers in one market does nothing for the consumers in another but does cause a lot of disruption and displacement that is rarely factored into economistic analysis of costs and benefits because economists tend to view people as dots on a spreadsheet the pain of someone being evicted from a home they've lived in for 30 years is not really part of the discussion even though it is an important part of the story of why it is, quote, rational to resist the coming of the pencil tower. 
still not the part of the article where he uh, makes all of the arguments that rich people do. Haven't seen it yet. I'm pretty sure that rich people want the big stupid pencil tower so that they can launder their earnings into an asset that will appreciate in value. But I don't know. What do I know? Okay, I, th- I think I finally found this um, argument that rich people made. Okay, here it is. Yimbies do not have much sympathy with preservationists or people who want to keep the character of their neighborhoods. But neighborhood culture and the preservation of local memory are important, and preservationism is not just for the wealthy. It often seems that way because, as a matter of empirical reality, it is the wealthy who have the greatest ability to defend their neighborhoods against the forces of progress. That just so happens to coincide neatly with what make de- makes developers rich. But here in New Orleans, for example, the French Quarter residents successfully resisted efforts to stick a highway through the neighborhood, while residents of the largely black Treen neighborhood did not. This was because of a lack of power. Preservationism seems like a bourgeois movement because the bourgeois have economic muscle, but nobody deserves to have the future of their neighborhoods determined by developers rather than a democratic process. So in this next paragraph, there's uh, something that I saw called out in the thread, which was kind of funny. Um, he says, there's no reason why good public housing can't be built. It is done elsewhere successfully. CEG, the remarkable Vienna model or the public housing success of Singapore. The Yimbis screenshot of that and argued against it by saying, oh, well, most of the residents of Austria live in Vienna and uh, Singapore is a country, even though Singapore is a city, it's a city state. But nevertheless, uh, that's why it can't work. So we just have to build 75 million homes a year, wait 25 years, whatever. So uh, I'm, I'm looking back at the original thread. Um, it's leftist Connor is the Yimby guy. And... Uh, <laughs> So he his first post is wrote a really lazy article about Yimbyism riddled with enough errors to make the segregationists at level California blush. Which he I don't think he actually points out any of these errors. So his his first uh, follow up tweet he quotes the preservationism seems like a bourgeois movement because the bourgeois have the economic muscle blah 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 uh, and he just says LMAO uh, okay. And then he quotes the uh, there's no reason why good public housing can't be built. It's done elsewhere successfully part. And he says uh, this is his first time looking into this stuff. So all his arguments are so pedestrian. Rich Beverly Hills council members repeat shit like this. But he's going to be really embarrassed in the coming weeks regarding who supports social housing development. Okay. Uh, so the next one he says uh, he quotes uh, there is no reason there is also no need for progr- pro- 
There is also no need for progress to involve bulldozing beloved historic places. He says uh, he says he stumbles into a basic urban policy problem here. Yes, public housing, but don't destroy historic neighborhoods to build it. Uh, okay, who decides what's historic? He already answered that in the article. Are there entire neighborhoods that should avoid public housing development? Who shapes these processes? He already answered that. Here's the other thing, okay? So, uh, referring back to... God, where did this article go? Okay. Referring back to that first article, they made the argument that we need to build new houses because older houses become more affordable. But then they're also like, oh, we can't defend uh, historic buildings. We can't We can't get rid of... Or, uh, we have to get rid of the old buildings. So, how is this supposed to work? So, you build new houses, and the old houses uh, filter down into um, the into the hands of the poor. Either you know after twenty five years, or by building seventy five million new houses a year. And uh, but you have to demolish old buildings to do it. So. Which old houses are they living in? I don't understand. I don't. I don't really get it. And uh, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder whose houses are going to get demolished uh, in this argument. Is it going to be uh, people with a lot of power to fight it, or people with not very much power to fight it? Hard to predict who would win there. So he cites uh, a passage from Fernando Marti of Shelter Force um, talking about the insidiousness of the Yimbi ideology. So he says, according to Yimbi leaders, uh, equity advocates are the problem too, a little different from the NIMBYs, rabid progressives who are too naive or ideological to understand how the market really works, which Connor pretty much covered all of that in his thread saying... LMAO and you've never even thought about this before and uh, you're making the same arguments as the rich. In this storyline, the na- in the name of fighting evictions and displacement, we progressives, we communities of color, we poor people and immigrants, we working class queers, stupidly don't realize that luxury development now will eventually become the affordable housing of the future. It's simple supply and demand, they say. Econ 101, and we obviously didn't go to college if we don't understand that simple truth. They say we foolish activists abuse environmental regulations and planning processes that allow for democratic participation to stop or slow development. So the answer to the problem is to do away with those pesky regulations, limit public input, and give up on any attempt to get real estate developers to mitigate their impacts on our neighborhoods. This is the viciousness of the Yimby argument. It tells people who want our homes that they deserve, by virtue of their whiteness and their status as part of a young college-educated elite, to get them. And there lies the genius of this narrative. An agenda for building up the power base of the neoliberal right is not going to get too far in liberal beachheads like San Francisco or New York using the traditional Republican platform. It needs a new story that appeals to young millennials and it has found it in the pro-housing language, pro-housing in scare quotes, of the Yimbies. 
But in the end, it's pushing the same underlying principles. The way to a more efficient future is to destroy belief in regulation, public investment, and democratic participation, whether the arena is charter schools or healthcare or housing affordability. And then he, uh, Robinson ends the article with, we can preserve without being reactionaries. We can believe in building new houses without letting developers control our future, the future of our cities. The NIMBY-YIMBY dichotomy is a false one, a piece of propaganda designed to make us think everyone who opposes any particular development is privileged, and anyone who supports it is socially progressive. The terms are ultimately grossly unhelpful, obscuring the underlying issues. Any understanding of the desirability of development depends on deeper questions like, whose backyard are we talking about? Who is saying yes? To what? Why? And and does the story they are telling hold up under scrutiny? Um, And... Connor, the California Yimby guy, um, says, OMG, it ends on a four hoomst, too perfect. So those are his arguments, uh, his responses to it. Great stuff. That passage has a couple links. I wanted to look at this limit public input link. This article that's uh, linked from Limit Public Input in that passage from uh, Fernando Marti basically talks about how YIMBYs and all uh, housing justice advocates agree that you should go after wealthy areas when they try to exclude affordable housing but their approach is different the main difference being Yimbies try to limit public input. Um, and the reason they do this is because in a lot of cases, wealthy residents will use the local control of planning to their advantage. And so in order to supposedly help low-income residents they take that power away from them. But uh, this is essentially like what I was reading yesterday in Seeing Like a State. In that chapter, uh, Scott was talking about how in the Middle Ages, local lords would use localized units of measurement to their advantage. And in France, they had the, the metric revolution. So they changed all the local units of measurement into the metric system. Uh, or an early version of it, anyway. And the result of that, of course, was that it was much easier to control everything from above. So by removing the uh, the local differences... Um, ostensibly an attempt to limit the ability of locals with power to abuse that process or that system. They actually opened up the door to far more tyrannical power, controlling it from above. And it's hard to see anything different happening if you take away like local input into decisions around urban planning and stuff like that because even if it 
even if they accept public input, it's much harder to have power uh, in public input settings on a larger scale, like on a larger level. You have to be more organized um, and there are larger forces at play that become more able to deal with uh, problems at that level. So they like the large spenders would be more able to use uh, to wield their power for those larger scale um, processes. So that was the whole current affairs article. I just happened to see that today and also coincidentally um, one of the articles that I actually put down in my notes for this recording was another article about NIMBYs versus ZMBs and uh, let me see okay it's from The Atlantic by Jacob Ann Bender I feel like I've seen that guy on Twitter before let's see Oh, yeah. Okay. He's like that dark-haired nerd with glasses who's like a PhD candidate in American history at Harvard. Writing about big liberal cities and the people who didn't want them to grow. <laughs> so he has like the Yimby shit right in his bio there. The title is The Pandemic Disproved Urban Progressive Theory About Gentrification. Which... I put in here as gentrification is actually the NIMBY's fault part 1350 whatever um, right off the bat there is you know something wrong with this with this article he says from California to the Northeast a funny thing happened recently in America's most expensive metropolitan areas very funny thing rents have gone down Ever since remote workers began fleeing urban cores at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, whether to the Hamptons or their parents' basements, urban housing markets have been flooded with empty apartments. As a result, the prices that rental units commanded in large, certain large cities have dropped dramatically to the tune of 18% in Boston, 19% in Seattle, and 20, nearly 25% in San Francisco, according to a November survey by the firm Apartment List. Okay. Rents have gone down because, uh, you know, 300,000 people are dead and nobody can afford the shit that they could before. And so they're going into lower income housing than they had to before. Uh, or they're, or they're fleeing urban areas altogether. Um, so according to Jacob, he says the cause of the drop should hardly be surprising. Are you ready? It's supply and demand. Uh, watch. The pandemic has radically decreased demand for big city living while also increasing the quantity of available apartments. Hey, it's supply and demand. Basic stuff. Yet this basic fact, plain for all to see, flies in the face of much received wisdom about the factors that cause urban housing prices to go up or down. Among some leftists and liberals alike, as well as politicians who, who court them, 
um, all these famous politicians who court leftists. Uh, the idea that developers of pricey apartments and condo buildings are to blame for high housing prices has long been an article of faith. So, somehow, uh, the <laughs> the housing market turning into a buyer's market um, somehow disproves that building new luxury condos uh, causes the prices to go up. Don't know how that's. I, I don't. What what is that supposed to be? What are you talking about? So he says that this argument that people make that building new housing increases the price of housing absolves nearly anyone who isn't a developer of responsibility for gentrification. And it also portrays new housing as the proximate cost of gentrification. It exacerbates and it exacerbates the very housing crisis that it seeks to solve. So here's the sophistry that he does. Um, progressives and leftists say replace old affordable housing with new luxury. Sorry, replacing old affordable housing with new luxury housing makes housing more expensive, which is a very straightforward and self-evidently correct argument um and then these people turn it into uh new housing makes housing more expensive um and then they argue against that so that's what this article is basically going to be it's going to be taking that argument that if we get rid of old houses and turn them into new houses uh that's gentrification and that causes housing prices to increase and arguing against uh, the abridged version of that, which is new housing makes housing more expensive. Um, so later in the article, he says, gentrification is a notoriously slippery term, and the popular appeal of any attempt to address it depends largely on how one defines it. By focusing on supposedly unrestrained growth as its root cause, New progressive campaigns have revived a decades-old political coalition of renters, homeowners, and other interest groups whose origins lie in a different era of these cities' histories. Um, so, he's saying these anti-gentrification people are actually just old fogies who are just like the rich people of the 60s, the 50s, and 70s, and all that. And uh, gentrification doesn't even really mean anything. So uh, they're fighting against like a shibboleth or whatever. Uh, but I mean, it's pretty simple. It's when poor people are displaced from their homes by rich settlers looking to take advantage of cheap prices to revitalize the neighborhood. Um, but according to Harvard here, it's actually just building new houses. That's what gentrification is. So... Um, and then he goes on to say, if gentrification is defined as a demographic transition toward wealthier, whiter residents, this approach makes for a poor policy response. This is because the forces that drive this kind of neighborhood change do not come from the construction of specific apartment buildings or retail complexes, no matter how many granite countertops or artisanal coffee shops they might contain. Instead, they result from a degree of demand for inner-city living that would have shocked the slow-growthers of the 1960s, demand that, for the most part, 
has been channeled not into new condos, but into homes built before the first wave of anti-development activism. When white-collar firms began to reconcentrate downtown in the 1980s and 90s, their workers, soon priced out of elite neighborhoods, bought old homes in marginal areas and modified them to their liking. The people they displaced crowded into poorer quarters of the city or moved on or moved to lower end suburbs or often left for more affordable parts of the country altogether. So right before this, he claimed that basically that the left thinks that gentrification is caused by coffee shops. And then he just like goes on to describe what gentrification is, which he said earlier is a notoriously slippery term that can't be defined but he he describes like the exact process and then the whole premise is that we need to accelerate this process actually uh, what we need to do is build even more houses and where are we going to build them we're going to build them somewhere so Who's it going to fall on? It's going to fall on poor people. So you're going to demolish old housing, build new housing at market rates, which are becoming increasingly expensive. They want to allow unrestrained construction of new homes so the rich can move into those new homes and then the middle class into those homes and then the poor into those homes, which is what gentrification is. Because there are only two ways new homes get built. Cities grow, which is unlikely in a lot of places like New York especially, or old buildings get demolished. And the old buildings that are going to get demolished are the ones that are the most marginal. I don't know if I don't know if I'm going to get much out of reading a ton more of this stuff because it seems very repetitive. It's leftists are stupid and don't understand economics. They're they're basically uh, just the same as uh, rich people from the 50s and their arguments are exactly the same as theirs and we need to uh, deregulate everything and just build tons of houses because uh, everything is governed by supply and demand so to wrap up the housing issue uh both the nimbies and the yimbies are in favor of the interests of various factions of the rich the best way to handle housing problems is anything that takes away the power of landlords and property developers who are like both of their interests are inherently against those of poor people who lack adequate housing If you're going to bother with state politics, the focus should be on affordable housing, rent control, and weakening landlord protections or uh, strengthening tenant protections. And squats and encampments should also be defended. People should be able to live in those empty rooms of 432, 432 Park Avenue. All right, so the last thing I'm going to touch on is someone named Artie Vierkant. Not really sure who that is. Fairly small Twitter account. And was shared to me by uh, Corey Farts on Twitter. 
talked about this uh, Brookings paper from June, June 2020. And he says, one of the most widely cited arguments against lockdowns is a Brookings paper from June premised on the idea that we can avoid the amount of deaths we're seeing now by using policies similar to what have been in place since fall. So this is policies for a second wave. And again, it's Brookings Institute, which is supposedly a like nonpartisan think tank, but you know, really based on everything I read, it's just right wing. Which I guess in this country is nonpartisan. Uh, but anyway. So it starts, governors and other policymakers can avoid a second wave of COVID-19 deaths or turn it around if it starts by re-emphasizing safety measures outside of work rather than reimposing broad-based business shutdowns that carry severe economic consequences, suggests the paper discussed at the Brookings Papers on Economic Activity Conference on June 25th. So the, the Conference for Economic Activity. <laughs> wow, they, uh, they said we shouldn't shut down business. Hmm. I wonder how they came to that conclusion. So in this paper, they were talking about policies for a second wave. The authors use a model combining epidemiological and economic components to conduct multiple simulations. Model study, of course. Their model divides the economy into 66 sectors and weights them by their contribution to economic output their health risks, and the age distribution of workers within each sector. They also modeled the effectiveness of safety measures outside work, such as restrictions on large non-work gatherings, mask wearing, social distancing, contact tracing, and quarantining, and special precautions for the elderly. They conclude that another round of economic shutdowns would be both costly in terms of unemployment and economic activity, and by itself would be unlikely to stop a second wave of deaths. In contrast, they say, stringent precautions outside of work, where people have roughly half their personal contacts during normal times, would benefit the economy by producing a declining trajectory in deaths that reassures consumers and workers that it is safe to return to near-normal economic activity. So, we need to make sure that it doesn't cost too much uh, to deal with this, and to assure people that they can go back to uh, not doing the things that you're recommending that they do. That's your, that's your argument. No, okay. Let's see, simulation, simulation, blah blah blah. So, these a model. Again, it's a model, a model. He's a model to suggest that shutting down the economy is neither necessary nor desirable. It just creates unemployment, but doesn't stop the deaths. It's a model. So, you know, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's a fucking model, okay? So, Artie has some quotes from the actual paper that they're citing here. And the first thing he points out is they base all of this on GDP to risk, uh, which means the sectors that contribute most to GDP 
should be preserved the most. Should, there should be the least number of sacrifices, uh, human sacrifices, in those sectors. So he points out uh, low GDP to risk industries are generally ones with many low paid employees who are exposed to high levels of personal contacts at work, including nursing and residential care facilities, food services and drinking places, social assistance, gambling and recreational industries, transit and ground passenger transportation and educational services. So uh, like the, the shit that we need the most they contribute the least to GDP, so they're the most expendable. He also points out, this paper goes to great lengths to say that lockdowns do little. Reductions by only X thousand deaths is a common phrase in here, and the only simulation they heap praise on is one where people take on their personal responsibility to increase personal distancing. So that thing we know... Everyone does. And he highlights, unlike any of the actions we have considered, this personal distancing policy brings our effective below one and deaths decline. The second wave is kept small and brief. Total deaths by the end of the year are only 187,000. So the last thing that I'll mention from here is another thing already called out here. They say not sending children to school reduces contacts among children and between children and their teachers and thus reduces the spread of the virus. But then they also say if schools are closed, then some workers will be constrained in their labor supply because they must provide childcare. As a result, the unemployment rate remains elevated. So... I think it's a pretty well-worn take by now, but clearly it is just the complete refusal to pay people to stay home that is causing all this shit um, in this country. The even even the, like the anti-masker people, it's like a I think a small minority. It's like the fringe lunatics. And then just the general idea that we can do, we can do a phase reopening, uh, which, you know, every fucking state is doing the like phase one through four bullshit instead of just having people stay home. No, like larger scale, anything like in Virginia, which is, you know, run by Democrats. It's, basically completely decentralized the counties decide everything like a lot of counties are sending teachers back into school and that is not going to improve anytime soon because one of joe biden's planks for his first hundred days was we're gonna reopen schools and send everyone back to work so just the absolute refusal to pay people to stay home it's not even a hard problem to solve like my coworkers, whenever this comes up they're like oh it's such a complicated problem it's not a fucking complicated problem at all you pay people to stay home 
and then wait for the vaccine to come out, wait for everyone to be vaccinated, and then maybe, uh, if it hasn't mutated by then and turned into, like, a new fucking pandemic, then... <laughs> then we can send people back to work. Although I don't think we should do that either, because fuck work. But, you know, of course, if we pay people to stay home, then they'll realize that uh, their job sucks, and they can get more money uh, just living off of you know, public welfare, and why would they want to go back to work? And then they'll probably uh, start like a fucking uprising. (laughs) So, from their perspective, I guess it totally makes sense. Uh, But, anyway. That's all I have for today. I think uh, the other stuff I put down became kind of dated because I took too long to edit the cyberpunk episode and now it's really old so hopefully this isn't too old by the time it comes out hopefully there's not already a new COVID mutation by the time this comes out and uh, thanks for listening bye